if you have to do every deal based on the facts that are presented to you, you really narrow the playing field and increase the competition. When you're willing to think outside of the box, say, well, there's an angle here, I believe in it, even if nobody else does, and go with your gut, then you increase your options. Best ever listeners, before we get into today's episode, I want to mention Doordevil. You know know what? I need to mention Doordevil. I need to mention Doordevil to you. It's not just a want. It's a need because you need this. Doordevil, quite simply, defends your home against kick-in burglary attacks. They happen frequently. There are 1.4 million homes that are broken into every year, and a lot of them are done through kick-ins. If you've got a home security system, then props to you. I'm glad you've got that, and that's important. But it doesn't prevent the bad people from kicking in your door, whether it's your front door, your back door, your side door. You need something like the Door Devil, and Door Devil is the best in the business when it comes to providing proof that it works. You can go to doordevil.com and even watch a video with Terry Bradshaw talking about it. And you can see how it works. It's a very simple product to install. But if you're not into that, then you can just hire a handy person and they can they can install it for you. Very simple. Put it inside the door frame of your front door, your back door, every door you have. And you can defend your home against the kick-in burglary attacks. It's needed. In addition, this is my brother's company. So it's near and dear to my heart. And because it's my brother's company, I'm able to offer you an exclusive discount because he was so kind to do so. You can go when you check out your uh, purchase at doordevil.com and there's going to be a little field. You enter the word best ever, no space, just one word, best, B-E-S-T-E-V-E-R, and you'll get a 20% discount on your purchase. So go to doordevil.com, go buy it, enter best ever and secure your home against kick-in burglary attacks. There are so many testimonials on the website. You can read them from police officers, from a woman who is being, uh, her house is being attacked from an enraged ex-husband, and the door devil defended that attack. Uh, He didn't get in. There's like 20 different testimonials from police officers on the door devil. Go buy it. Defend your home against burglary kick-in attacks. Go to doordevil.com and enter the word best ever whenever you check out and you'll get 20% off on your purchase. Best ever listeners, how are you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless and this is a show where we cut out all that fluffy stuff. We don't get into it. We only talk about the real estate advice that moves your business forward. We've spoken to Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank, Robert Kiyosaki, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Tom Wheelwright, Rich Dad, Poor Dad's CPA. Highly recommend going to listen to that episode. Jay Papazon, the co-author of The One Thing and The Millionaire Real Estate Agent with Gary Keller. And many other best ever guests. And with us today, how you doing? Adam Cohen. Thank you. Uh, very good. Thank you. Well, good. I'm so glad. And uh, a little bit about Adam, and then he'll get into it. He is the president and owner of West One International. He's got 23 years of experience as a real estate investor, hard money lender, developer, and advisor. He's based in Miami, Florida, but he works all over and from both the U.S. as well as the U.K., as you'll hear from his accent. And you can say hi to him and his team at their website, westoneinternational.com. 
And according to his bio, and we'll hear more about this, he closes all those complicated deals that nobody else can. With that being said, Adam, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on? Sure. Uh, I mean, I've been in the business for like 23 years. You know, I grew up in the industry. My uh, father was in the business and I guess I inherited the gene. Um, you know, I came out to America in around about the year 2000 and, you know, was in the New York market for about 10 years. My focus interest, I guess, has always been commercial real estate, especially the distressed assets or high-end luxury market, foreclosure, bankruptcy, distress, rehab. I invested in myself and we finance hundreds of those projects every year. Came to the U.S. in 2000. What was the main difference from a real estate standpoint that you noticed? The U.K. is a very competitive market. You know, uh, I used to buy and sell at real estate auctions in the UK where you'd have thousands of people in a room uh, negotiating for the same properties. So when I came to America, you know, I would say initially to one extent it's like a slower pace, but then the mechanics of it is a lot faster. So I would say buying and selling real estate in the US is not for the faint-hearted. You focus on commercial distressed assets. Why commercial over residential or you know single family homes? Essentially the exit strategy when I work on a commercial asset, I know the person I'm going to be selling to is sophisticated, credit-worthy, cash-worthy, so that I can sell the property relatively quickly at a competitive price. The residential market, you get a combination of like, end users who are more picky and you know you don't know if they're going to get the mortgage or if they have the cash or you know, it's a harder sell. And um, also even, for example, the rental market on the SFRs, you know, sometimes like SFRs and condominiums don't always debt service. So commercial properties, there's usually sufficient income to support the debt, which means you know that you're going to be able to sell it at a reasonable price in a shorter period of time. So you focus on commercial and distressed assets. Tell us a little bit about where you find them and what's the typical deal look like for you. I'm very fortunate that people know me in the business for many years. So I would say a lot of my deals fall into my lap. As a, a lender um, and a well-known investor, you know, I get presented hundreds of deals almost every day. So I cherry-pick the ones that I like. And what makes a good deal for me is usually the one you know, the, you know, that's been on the market for a while, heavily in debt. You know, most people have looked at it and run away. And then I feel that it's kind of it's wounded. You know, it's, uh, you know, um, take, you know, the ship is taking on water. And I feel that's a good time for me to come in and start doing my damage to take the property down. We tell us a story of a property like that and your experience with it? Sure. Uh, I'm pretty well known. I have a company called Handsome Devil Enterprises. I am the handsome devil. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm pretty well known in Miami for a particular transaction that I did on Hibiscus Island in South Beach, which is uh, one of the most expensive islands in Miami, you know, private gated. You know, Hibiscus and Palm Island is next to Star Island, you know, where all the rich and famous live. We had a house that we took over on that island, on you know, on the south end of the island, facing uh, the bay, and you know, beautiful views. Seven thousand square foot luxury home. The property had probably twelve million dollars worth of debt on the property. The developer had turned down a fourteen million dollar cash offer, believing he was going to get closer to twenty. Then the Florida market tanked, and uh, the house wasn't finished. And they ended up in bankruptcy and then they ended up in foreclosure and so many foreclosures going on. The property was probably on the market for about 
three years with everybody who's anyone trying to get the house. I was actually in Vegas consulting to um, various big clients over there when I got the call. I took over the property. I negotiated the deal with the owner for the contract. And we basically, over a, say a 30 to 40 day window, negotiated down all of the debts by about half. Then we flipped the house and made a seven figure profit on the house. The whole deal took about 90 days. So there's many things within that story that I want to dig into. I mean, really, okay. yeah, uh, really the, I guess the, one of the things that stands out is negotiating down the debt almost about 50% because I suspect that's the main reason or one of the reasons why people were not buying it. How were you able to do that? I, I did a market study of all the similar houses that were for sale in the South Beach area and if you know Miami, you know, you've got Pine Tree Drive, Alton Road, you've got the Luxury Islands, Williams Island, Fisher Island. And we did a market study of what the houses were selling for, time on the market, offers that were coming in, the type of buyers that were buying those properties and the values. And the market had honestly fallen. It, you know, they had the fair market value of that house could have been, based on the buyer, somewhere between three and a half to five million dollars. And you know, the buyers just weren't coming in. We actually found the Jordanian person that bought the house in the end. It was a Jordanian or Kuwait. I think it was. I think he was Jordanian, but he was president of the Bank of Kuwait, and uh, they were the people that actually bought the house from us. So we actually found a buyer. Had they got it into contract, and then we used that based on the market analysis to negotiate the debt. Okay, so you you found the buyer before you negotiated down the debt. Yeah, I did it backwards. That's interesting. Have you done that approach before? It's uh, my signature move. Okay. I've been doing it for 20 years and I find it works for me every time. It's hard to negotiate if you don't have a, a closing strategy. And, you know, which I, whereas either A, you're, you're closing and funding it yourself, or B, you have the buyer for it because you make a negotiation with the bank and then there's no follow through. So if you can line that up in advance, it just adds value to your negotiations. Mm, that's the key, huh? Yes, significant key. When you have the buyer, what information do you go back to the bank? Like, okay, so you just, first off, how did you meet this buyer? Through a very good realtor friend. And were you actively talking to people about the property? But since you didn't have it under contract, or is it just kind of a, hey, this is what I'm looking to do if you know of anyone? You know, uh, the realtor that listed the house for me is an international listing broker. Most of his clients come in from overseas, not through the Miami market. I knew I was never going to get the asking price I needed locally I had to go overseas so we did uh, a marketing to like overseas clients high-end net worth on the house and I actually did most of the showings myself so and people would come in and give me their low ball offers and whatnot but negotiation is kind of an art form and you know you have to be, you know, know how to say no and know how to be and say it confidently enough that people respect you and feel that you're not in a position of weakness if people sense your weakness then they they will like wait for the lions to jump in. So being the way I am and the experience that I have, I negotiated from strength. I turned away a lot of offers until the right offer came in. And even then, I retraded the negotiation several times to push the price up. Do you negotiate just on price or are there other things, as you just mentioned, that you retraded several times throughout the process? Was it multiple aspects of the contract or was it all just lower and lower price? Well, it's based on multiple things. Like, for example, they wanted certain work done in the house, which I was willing to do, but that was not included in the price. 
there were you know negotiations going on with the bank that moved around multiple times for different reasons plus third parties that had liens and you know those negotiations so when for example i couldn't get everybody satisfied with the amount i had on the table we had to renegotiate a little bit then what i did was i got those agreements secured i then finalized the price that i had with the purchaser and then i went back to everyone that had pushed me up and said the deal's not going to work either you take what's on the table or there's no deal money today or money never bankruptcy foreclosure wipeout so I went back, and after I got everyone agreed, I pushed them all down again. Let's do one more story of a property like this or a property you've, you've done. You want to tell us one more story on something that you've done that was creative that uh, other people didn't want to touch, but you did? Yeah, I did a building in London in uh, Royal Lancaster Gate, which is a beautiful neighborhood right by Hyde Park. It was one of my first commercial deals I ever did because the building didn't cash flow very well. It was kind of, I guess you could have called it like a, in, in the UK version, a rent-stabilized building. Right, but the location was fantastic. I bought the property at auction and I paid one million pounds for the building at auction and everybody laughed at me when I paid it because I probably paid about 150,000 at that time, you know, maybe 15% more than the value of the building. But I knew it was in Royal Lancaster Gate and I knew that if I could increase the rent roll that um, I could sell the house for a, for a healthy profit. I bought out all of the tenants so basically, I ended up with a vacant building, and then I re-rented it at commercial rents. Now I was able to sell the house, for the, sorry, the building, for the value that it was worth in the most prominent location in London. What type of building was it? Was it just a, a residential building, and then you... It, it was seven two-bedroom apartments, a building, in a, right by Hyde Park in London. Okay, so they just weren't, they weren't maximizing the rent for those apartment units? No, they had, it was one of those buildings that, you know, in, in UK law, if you have like a rent control tenant, you can't increase the rent. But if they leave, you don't have to go through rent stabilization to increase the rents, where like, for example, in New York, there was, a, you know, it's an increase, say, 3% a year. If they leave, it's of their free will, then you can go right to commercial rents. So I actually ended up renting the building to an airline, to British Airways, above market rents, and that was a five-year contract. So now I could sell the building as a going concern you know, with a healthy profit. What was British Airways doing with it? They were just rented out the units. I sold the building to a hedge fund who uh, bought it with the uh, British Airways contract. But they were renting out for their employees? or Yeah, for their uh, pilots and the hostesses. How did you find British Airways as a group to rent versus just individuals? I have a friend of mine who's an executive at British Airways. With these types of, of deals, what would you say are the keys to coming up with this type of structure or the, the creativity? The key is knowing the right people and seeing the big picture. You know, a lot of people, they, they look at what's in front of them, they take the information, and they don't think about you know, the creative side. You know, if you have to do every deal based on the facts that are presented to you, you really narrow the playing field and increase the competition. When you're willing to think outside of the box and say, well, there's an angle here, I believe in it, even if nobody else does, and go with your gut, then you know you, you uh, increase your options and can make greater margins. How did you initially, going back way, way whenever you started, way, way back when you started, how did you have the, the funding or the capital to do deals? I was lucky enough that I grew up among, the, I guess, the right neighborhood, and I was able to find investors to say that this is a really good deal. Uh, I've thought it out. I have a plan to 
convince them that I knew what I was doing, which, and honestly, back in the day, I don't think I really did, but I think I had a good angle, and, you know, got their support, and they came behind me on it, and we would, you know, get bridge financing, you know, reasonable rates, and investor capital, and that was kind of how we got started. And with that deal, what was it? What was the first deal? That was the one in London, in Lancaster Gate. That was my first Oh, that was the first one? Yeah, my very first deal. Oh, wow. With the British Airways? British Airways didn't buy it. They, they oh, I know, I know, I know. But the, the, that, that's that deal? That, that was your first one, the seven, two-bedroom yeah, building? Yeah, that, that, that was my first commercial deal. Uh, that was done in 1997. You said commercial deal. Did you do residential deals before that? Yeah, I had a, a real estate office in London, uh, in Marlebone Village. So I would get residential deals coming in all the time. People needed to sell something quickly because they were international you know, community. They needed a cash buyer, someone could move quickly. And I was already at that point buying and selling and flipping like residential properties you know, pretty much every month. When this Lancaster, you said Royal Lancaster Gate, is that correct? Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's right, the area. Right. Right. Yeah, it's, right. it's, it's called a gate because as you go into Hyde Park, you know, going back to the days when you had the, uh, you know, the Red Coast controlling Great Britain, um, all the entrances to the park were essentially considered gates to London. Okay. So, you know, so that was kind of why they were called that. All right. I want to go back in time to when you uh, identified this opportunity, but you hadn't, you hadn't raised money before, correct? No, that was my first time that raising was, money. That was the first time raising money. You had to go to an auction. So I suspect that uh, you had to put a down payment as well as uh, then you had to pay cash shortly thereafter of one point, what was one million pounds. How did you have the down payment? Was that from just from work? And then how did you communicate that to your investors being that that was your first deal? I had had a pretty successful communications company in England during the uh, mid 90s. And that had done pretty well, and I'd sold that business, so I did have my own money. But uh, I put that down. I, you know, as I said, I'd grown up in a real estate business, so I, I knew the business through my family and through my dad's friends and people I'd been, you know, grown up with all my life. So it wasn't my first time going to an auction or my first time doing a deal. It was the first one I did myself. But I thought about the deal. I researched the property before the auction. I researched what my options were, what it was gonna. You know, I'd already met with some of the tenants and. You know, felt them out as to what it was going to cost them to you know to move out, which essentially giving them money, finding them a new place, paying the rent for them, concessions like that that made it worth their while to make the move. And having been in business already for a while, I reached out to uh, some of my friends and said, "Listen, I'm going to have this building in a fantastic location, easy access of all of London." And I just got lucky with having a good friend of mine who was a uh, you know working as an executive for British Airways. And she made a call to the real estate department, and they said, yes, we'd love to take the units. It's a perfect location for us. How many investors did you have for that million dollars? Two. Two. Okay. What, 500 apiece? Or? No, uh, we actually got a bridge loan for about a half a million pounds, and we had two investors that put up 250,000 pounds each. Okay. So you got the bridge loan for 500, and you had 250 from each investor. You had yeah. never done a commercial deal before. How did you raise $500,000 and tell them you're going to pay a million dollars, which is what everybody else, the world, thought it was worth? So you're, you weren't getting value going in, but you had this plan of buying people out and doing upgrades and repositioning it. How did you communicate that? The people that I approached were people who I'd known all my life, and they were real estate investors themselves. And I approached them on the deal. I approached them my angle. They felt it would work. They believed in it. 
they believed in me having grown a, a successful business and that they knew I was a hard worker and a serious person and that I wasn't looking for the money to spend on lifestyle. So they had faith in me and they liked the deal and they said yes. And it actually only took me less than a week to raise the money. What type of documentation did you have as far as presenting it to them? I put together like a small business plan. Adam, what's your best real estate investing advice ever? Have a long-term plan. You know, a lot of people think about buying and selling and investing and flipping, which is great. But those people don't prepare for a future life. They spend their money as quickly as it comes in. I would say flipping properties is a great way to live. But always have a long-term plan you know, and to remember to hold on to your best assets, manage them, and grow them for future life. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Go ahead. All right. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Do you have a fix and flip project that needs financing? Then go to fundthatflip.com. You can do the online application. Takes as little as five minutes to see if you're approved. And then you could be financed within seven days. Pretty quick stuff. They're an online lender. They specialize in fix and flip projects. Go to fundthatflip.com. Best ever book you've read? The Magician by Raymond D. Fixed. Best ever personal growth experience and what did you learn from it? Uh, dealing with the recession and getting divorced in 2009. You know, taking a huge loss on a bunch of assets and then turning it around and making that a profitable over the... It took a few years, but it was definitely a growing period. And what specifically did you learn? I think I learned to uh, be more cautious, not to always take it for granted that everything you're going to do is going to be successful. You have to be willing to take a loss, to learn from it and to grow from it rather than to throw in the towel. Best ever deal you've done? Definitely the Miami deal. Best ever way you like to give back? I love teaching. I love to help people that are new in the business or have good ideas or want to kind of grow and I love trying to give them good guidance and good advice. What's the biggest mistake you've made in real estate so far? I sold my building in Leicester Square. What implications did that have? What, what were the numbers and where would it be at now? Uh, that building, when I sold it, I sold it for about two million pounds. I also bought it at auction. It's probably worth about 15 million today. <laughs> Why did you sell it at the time? Um, it was a good offer. I made a healthy profit. I regret selling it. Adam, what's the best ever place the best ever listeners can reach you? Uh, always in my cell phone or in the office. You know, they can go to the uh, website and call us through the uh, you know, 800 number. And that's usually the best place to get us. Okay, and that's westoneinternational.com. Adam, thank you for being on the show and sharing your advice with best ever listeners and talking about a couple deals that you've done from a very creative standpoint. Uh, the one in Miami where the key was finding the buyer before negotiating so that you're negotiating from a, a point of strength. And then the Royal Lancaster gate deal where you paid what everyone thought was market value, which I guess at the time it was market value for the property, but then you had a plan to increase the value of the property through some uh, creative ways. And uh, really interesting that that was your first commercial deal right out of the gate where you raised $500,000 from two individuals who had known you throughout your career. So thank you so much for being on the show. Hope you have the best ever day and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me. I enjoyed uh, the uh, interview. Do you have a fix and flip project that needs financing? Then go to fundthatflip.com. You can do the online application. Takes as little as five minutes to see if you're approved. And then you could be financed within seven days.
pretty quick stuff. They're an online lender. They specialize in fix and flip projects. Go to fundthatflip.com.